marketing, explosive growth, and revolutionary secrets that can catapult your business to new heights. You're now listening to the Underground Marketer Podcast with your host, Tudor Dumitrescu. The one podcast devoted to showing new businesses how to market themselves for high growth. Welcome to the Underground Marketer. This is the place where we deliver the real truth about marketing and explore big ideas that can help new businesses thrive and grow into big ones. I'm your host, Tudor, and today I have a very special episode for you because I'm here with a guest and that is Iwan Mateescu, who also goes by the name of Speed, by the nickname, I should say, of Speed. And he is a real underground marketer. He is a pro. And basically, today we're going to hear a bit about his story and how he made it as an underground marketer and all the knowledge that he has amassed. So hi, Iwan, and welcome. Hello, Tudor. Thank you for bringing me on. That's, it's great to have you here. The pleasure is mine, Iwan. So I guess we should start by hearing a bit about your story. Basically, you know, how did you get involved in online marketing? Was this something that came all of a sudden? Was it more gradual? Or basically, how did your involvement in marketing come about? Mm, okay, so I guess it was gradual. It was a, a, a long journey that started when I was quite young, actually. Uh, should I go like all the way back or do you want me to skip? Well, like, sure. I mean, parts? feel free, feel free to go all the way back. Okay. Okay. So I used to be a pro gamer back when I was like a, a young teenager, like 13 ish years old, all the way up to like 16, 17. Um, and in that world, in the world of esports, you end up encountering a lot of interesting people, usually people older than 13. Yeah. Uh, who have a lot of, uh, different expertise and experience and, uh, at the time, back in the days, yeah, there wasn't that much money in esports. So you had to be very resourceful to actually be able to fund your teams, you know, to go to events, to be able to fly to tournaments and do interesting stuff like that. So you had to learn how to look for sponsors, how to, you know, find up uh, deals and things, opportunities that you can, you know, pursue to be able to compete and have a good time in this community. And there's a lot to learn from that. And that was basically my first interaction with the idea of marketing. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how it worked, but naturally through engaging with these people, I picked up, you know, some things here and there. And as things developed, I got more and more involved with different organizations and with actual organized efforts to attract, you know, money into this community, into esports in general. Um, and that's how I first got involved into marketing and how I developed kind of my philosophy towards the idea of, uh, commerce, you know, free interactions between people and things like that, which laid the foundations or the expertise uh, that, you know, made me successful in this industry. Oh, that's really cool. So it's, it's really a fantastic story how you sort of stumbled onto marketing as something that you needed in order to become successful in esports, basically. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, that, that was basically it. I had some, like, uh, basically I had to write a lot of stuff yeah. So I developed my writing skills as a teenager because I had to write proposals to different businesses and organizations to get sponsorship money in. Uh, I had to write articles and blog posts and things like that about the events that we were participating in, trying to get hype going on, get people to uh, watch our players play and things like that. I wasn't generally the player myself. 
because I was more in a management and coaching position usually. But nice. there was a lot of interesting effort uh, involved like that, which built the skills that became relevant later on. Mm-hmm. And how did they become relevant? Well, I always had this feeling that, hey, the, the normal path through life is just not okay. It's just not, like doesn't make any sense. Why do you have to do all of these stupid things that everyone has to do? You know, get a job, go to school, go to university, blah, blah, blah. Um, and at one point I decided, hey, there has to be a better way. I need to find that better way. And I started looking for things. And I found this guy called Dane Maxwell, um, mm-hmm. who created the foundation. And he introduced me to a, a few interesting ideas uh, you know, that you could actually just call business owners and talk to them, just ask them stuff, get ideas, figure things out, solve problems. And I realized like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of doing this already with the esports stuff, only it's for my problems, my needs, my team's needs, my organization's needs. Why don't I do that for their needs? And uh, I started cold calling people. I started cold emailing people, just directly, you know, interacting with them, trying to find opportunities to create value in the market, not just in esports, but now in general as well. And yeah. All right. So that, that's really cool. Uh, you mentioned, I will backtrack a bit because you Mm -hmm. mentioned something that really caught my interest. And you mentioned that being in the esports world, uh, helped shape your philosophy of marketing. Yeah. So, I mean, can you tell us a bit more about how it affected the way you see marketing? And what exactly you took from esports, because I think that that's quite unique, you know, as a path mm-hmm. into marketing. So I think that there's a lot of value that people can get from there. Okay, well, I'm from Romania. And uh, if you're not aware, if you're not from Eastern Europe, then uh, the mentality here is not very entrepreneurial. It's not very uh, freedom minded. We just got out of communism in like 89. Okay, our our recent history is very, very authoritarian. Um, So the way you're brought up in this country isn't really aligned with the idea of creating value and helping other people or or, uh, abundance. I think that's the best word to describe it. Yeah, yeah. So Romania in general is very scarcity minded. Everyone is trying to hold things down. Oh, no, make sure they're not wasting too much. Make sure they're not sharing with too many people because it might get lost on the way. Yeah. So interacting in the esports community, I I mostly initially activated in the UK scene. So I was in the Counter-Strike team and I played in the United Kingdom scene. I played with a bunch of uh, European people. But as it grew and I developed, I moved further and further away from my borders. Yeah. And I met a lot of interesting American people and the mentality in America is a lot different. It's very, very different. And I start, yeah, I started talking to those people and interacting with them and, and engaging with their philosophy. That was more liberal, you know, more freedom minded and more entrepreneurial. Like the idea of the American dream is about you can get shit done. You can do things. You don't need to wait. You don't need to ask for permission. You don't need to scrounge resources up. Just go and do it. And uh, that brushed up on me. And I started going and doing things because why not? It's very cool that you're bringing this up because uh, back when I was 14, this, when you were talking just now, this, this mm-hmm. scene you know, flashed back in my mind when I was 14 and I was playing World of Warcraft And I remember, uh, because I'm also from Romania, right? And I remember interacting with one guy from the the server there. And that that guy was from the US. And I remember at one point saying to him something like, you know, but I'm 14, I'm too young for that. I don't remember what he proposed or whatever. 
And his reaction was like, so what? You know, age doesn't matter so much. And But at that point, I still had that inbred, let's say, Romanian attitude of things, which is basically like a fixed mindset. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to go through life. And you can't get out of those bounds, you know. And mm -hmm. But seeing that mindset in somebody else, you know, sort of freed me, freed my mind. You yeah, know? it basically tells you that it's possible. Yeah, exactly. Like if, if you know, yeah. Exactly. So it, it made me see that it's, there's a different way of being, you know, and I don't have to uh, let my age or whatever else it could be hold me back. So I think that that's really huge. And I think that I also got that from uh, gaming because, I mean, that mm -hmm. was one of the only ways to interact with people from outside uh, yeah, yeah. back then. Cool. That's totally true. And, and what I want to mention is that uh, a lot of these people that I was interacting with in these organizations and teams, uh, we wanted to go to events. Like we had to go to these events to mm -hmm. participate in tournaments and compete and do the things that we wanted as professional gamers. Yeah. And in order to do that, because there wasn't money uh, from sponsorships and the industry was still small, um, we had to make up that money on our own. But we were like 16, 17, like 20, uh, whatever. We couldn't get jobs. We had university and school and stuff. So we had to figure out other ways of generating revenue so we could go to events. And mm -hmm. we started doing all sorts of different things. Like uh, the owner of the organization that I spent most of my time in uh, is a web designer. Uh, he just built websites as a freelancer. And he actually built an agency eventually and had a business that just made websites for people. Other people were graphic designers. Uh, some people started coaching others. Like they had the skills. They were very good at this game. Why not share that knowledge and the ability with other people so they can develop their own skills for some money? Easy stuff. Like the idea of uh, private tutoring. Uh, I paid my, my math teacher like $15 an hour so she could mm -hmm. teach me math because I, I wanted to be better at math so I could graduate with high grades or whatever. Yeah. Well, at the, exactly the same time, same period, I was a, a, a coach in StarCraft II and I was coaching people for $15 an hour <laughs> yeah, to play StarCraft better. Yeah. So I was teaching them how to play StarCraft. So I was making as much at 16 years old with like no skills really, no practical market skills, or, or uh, you know, if you look at it from this perspective of a regular person that you need to get a, uh, a degree, you need to get mm -hmm. five years of experience in some random industry, whatever. And from that perspective, from real perspective, I actually did have marketable skills because I was actually marketing them, yeah? But I was making as much money and probably more money than uh, my math tutor by tutoring StarCraft which was very liberating for me. I was like, holy shit, if I can do this, then I can do way more. And uh, some of the people that I was working with, because they were a lot more in demand than me, because they were popular streamers and they had an audience and whatever, they were raised, charging more and more rates, like not $15, 30, 50, 100, $300 an hour, just so people wow. had the opportunity yeah, to hang out with them basically on stream and learn from them directly because they're very strong players uh, in that particular niche. Wow, that's awesome. And it really shows the, the impact that adopting basically this growth mindset and just being aware of the possibilities that exist, the impact that this can make. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's not true just for marketing, but it's, it's true overall, I would say, in life. You know, if you, if you get stuck with a fixed mindset, then you're going to stay in the same position pretty much forever because you, exactly. you're not going to take action to move anywhere else. You know, whereas with a growth mindset, you focus on learning and you realize that you can always learn more and basically 
become better, you know, uh, because nobody starts out knowing how to be an entrepreneur, you know, mm -hmm. knowing how to start a business and all of this. It's stuff that people learn over time. Yeah, precisely. And um, a lot of these people that I met ended up being very successful in this alternate reality, so to say. Mm -hmm. um, and I had dreams. I wanted things to do, to accomplish. You know, I wanted to become a nuclear engineer and solve the world's energy problem, like figure out nuclear fusion and things like that. And mm -hmm. I realized, hey, if I want to actually do that, I need to spend like 20, 30, 50 years studying this stuff. And then I would have to be dependent on you know, the state and various organizations just to give me funding so I can do research. And then who knows what's going to happen? It was very, very non-autonomous. I, I lacked autonomy on this path, the way I predicted. Um, right. And I, want, I wanted autonomy. I needed autonomy to accomplish these goals. And I realized, hey, what if I just make more money that I can fund myself? So Absolutely. I just redirected. So, I mean, this story sounds quite similar to me, to Elon Musk's story. Because, I mean, he also wanted to do his PhD in physics at one point and work as a researcher, but he realized that really if you don't have access to the capital that you need, you can't do all the cool experiments and uh, research that you want to do. You know, you're forced to do basically what other people uh, ask you to do, the people who have the money. And it sounds like you realize something similar here, that if you wanted to make your own path, you had to do it from the very beginning. Right, exactly. Uh, and uh, it was very obvious to me because uh, on the one hand, I was interacting with these regular people who had uh, degrees, they had like decades of experience, they were doing a lot of work and they were very, very smart people who were just standing still, not accomplishing anything. And I was also at the same time interacting with these other people who are like 16, 17, 20, 25 year olds who had no degree, they had no decades of experience in anything, they were making millions of dollars. Like some of them were poker players who literally wow. were millionaires. Yeah, because they just knew how to play poker really well. And there's a lot of money in poker at the time. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, also were pro gamers in other areas because these there's quite a bit of overlap in different gaming industries or niches. And the guy that I mostly worked with uh, that I mentioned, uh, he ended up becoming a millionaire through streaming and having a, a large audience. Uh, mm -hmm. He does a whole bunch of interesting things right now. He still does gaming like 10, 15 years after. Uh, he still does a little bit of poker. There's just a lot of interesting stuff in this other area, which normal people will never have access to. And they don't even know it's possible. So I'm like, okay, what, what, should, what should I choose? Should I follow the path of my math teacher who's barely making any money after 25 years or 40 years or however long she's studied and developed her skills and knowledge? Or should I just make money doing valuable things in this other area. Right. I hear you. And I mean, that's how it goes. And you realize that you want your freedom, you know, more than you mm -hmm. want that fixed path, which I mean, many people say that if you take that fixed path, you'll have more security. But personally, I think that that's wrong because you just have mm -hmm. the illusion of security and fundamentally, in the end, you're not even a single bit more secure. You just feel like that because you're not aware of the uncertainty and basically what's going wrong. Right. There's an impression of control in the regular path. But the, the problem is that that control is not in your hands. It's in the hands of other people, the people who have the leverage exactly. upon you, yeah, your employer or whatever. Um, 
So going on the other path where you don't have someone else controlling you, you may have less control overall, let's say, but more of it is in your hands. So realistically, you actually do have more control and you also have way more freedom. So with more freedom, because more opportunity to prosper and build value. So it's definitely a, a way better choice. And once I had this realization, I started looking for knowledge, for ways to understand it better and for ways to actually you know, scale it up, make it work for me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. through this quest for knowledge uh, and interacting with these people who had way more experience than me and were actually living in this world for many years, I came across this book called The Millionaire Fast Lane by MJ mm-hmm. DeMarco. It's a great and book. Yeah, it, it's it's a life changer. It's what literally opened my mind. Like I, I had suspicions before. I knew, I felt it, I saw it, I did it. Yeah, in reality, like, hey, there's you, the slow path sucks. There's a better path, but uh, I'm not too sure about it. Well, it's risky. It's weird. It's unknowable. Uh, is that really something that I can access myself? But then I read that book and it all made sense. It was like, okay, this is, this is exactly what I suspected, put into words that I can understand and then make 100% sense. So then I completely abandoned the slow lane and I completely accepted the fast lane. And I've been working more and more to develop my life and my uh, progress along the fast lane with the philosophy from that book, basically. That's really cool. So for the for our listeners who may not know, can you quickly basically summarize the difference between the slow lane and the fast lane? Um, well, okay. So we've kind of summarized it already through the dichotomy between the, the normal people and these other people. Yeah. So the slow lane is basically the regular life that everybody tells you that you need to live. Yeah. You need to go to school. You need to go to university, get a degree so you can get a good job. You need to spend however long at that job, save a little bit of money, you know, like 10, 20% if you can put it aside, you know, accrue interest that's compounding interest and just acquire a little bit and a little bit more experience, more skills, build your career for decades and decades. So that when you're 75 or whatever, you can finally retire and have some freedom to live your life. Well, and have 1 million in the bank. Yeah. I mean, it's not even a lot of money. It's just, yeah, it's, it's horrible. Uh, so I rejected that. I was like, there's no way I want to live like that. What if I die when I'm 40? Like I just waste my life. Like, no way I want, I want to be retired and rich and capable of doing everything that I want to do when I'm 30. No, no, not 30, 25. So that's what the fast lane is. The fast lane is basically just rejecting all of that and accepting that there are ways that you can create more and more value in a compounding way that is super, super fast. So instead of getting a shitty job, you build a business because a business that you control and that you can scale up and leverage allows you to not make $1 an hour or $100 an hour or $10,000 an hour. It allows you to make a million dollars a day just by having all of these slowly people working for you and magnifying the value that you can create. So basically what Jeff Bezos did, the reason he's a billionaire and he's not, you know, working for $10 an hour as a teacher somewhere is because he embarked on the fasting route and he built a business that he scaled up slow and steady until he reached a critical mass where it's just boomed. You know, he's making a lot of money. There's a lot of value in that business called Amazon. Exactly. So, I mean, for me, the millionaire fasting was also a turning point 
And the, the main thing that I got out of it was the emphasis on value and the understanding that the more value you provide, basically, the more money you can make. And I think that that is essential in marketing. Because if you think about it, a lot of people have this mistaken idea uh, that uh, marketing is somehow about tricking people, you know, and getting mm -hmm. to buy what they don't want and so on. And that's not actually the case because marketing is just about identifying what people need and then giving it to them. You know, I like to think of marketing as bringing buyers and sellers together. That's what marketing does. It puts the action into the markets, literally. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's communication. It's Absolutely. It Absolutely. So then how did you make the transfer from gaming into marketing? Like, did you start freelancing or how exactly did you do it? Yeah, so uh, I mentioned uh, Dave Maxwell's foundation before. So I, yeah. I spent a lot of time, like after I read The Fascinating Millionaire when I was like 17 or 16 or something, I realized that, hey, the stuff that I was learning before from Dave Maxwell are exactly this. So I learned about uh, value-based selling, which is the idea that, you know, you don't just sell something with tangible thing. You sell uh, proportional to the value that you create for the other person. So when mm -hmm. you're trying to negotiate with someone, you ask, okay, how much money do you make from the service that I provide? Literally, basically. And then you offer, you ask for, for them to pay you like a percentage of that value that you just created. So if they have, for example, a problem that cost them uh, for each employee that they have like five hours a week, it doesn't sound that much, but five hours a week at $10 an hour is $50 a week per employee. They have like 20 employees. Yeah, that's $1,000 a week. So it really, really quickly adds up. So you want to recognize these problems and see how you can optimize them or build a solution that reduces those costs. So if I, I can reduce that person's cost from five hours a week per employee to one hour a week per employee, because I have a software solution that makes it a lot more you know, optimized and fast, then they've literally uh, won uh, like a, a few thousand dollars a month every month from then on. So I can easily ask them for like a couple grand to hire a developer, you know, to build that solution that takes, you know, I don't know, 10, 20 hours of their time to build it. Absolutely. So that, that, that's, that's a fantastic idea right there. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, did you then use this to... I did. I did. So once, I, once the click happened in my mind and I realized that, hey, these things are all real. They work. They make a lot of sense. I already have the skills to accomplish these things because I've done, you know, that I, I've got money for my team through cold emailing businesses and stuff. So I, I did it. It works. Let's do it for actual real stuff. And I, at the time I was also uh, working out uh, competitively. Yeah. So I, I was doing basically powerlifting and uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I was uh, quite into fitness. And I was like, okay, I have some fitness expertise. I know how this things work. I know, uh, you know, nutritional stuff. Let's, get in this niche because I, I heard, I read, I don't know. I had the impression at the time that this was a good niche and it is a good niche. Uh, it's like a perennial every type industry. To be honest, for direct yeah, yeah. So for healthcare uh, and all of these things, it's just very, very good. And I went on LinkedIn. I had like no experience. I was a college dropout. I didn't mention that, but I did drop out of uh, university when I realized that the stolen sucks. Um, and I had like three months or let's go back a little bit. So I started trying to contact people and I started cold calling businesses. I got them off manta.com, M-A-N-T-A.com. 
Well, that's basically a repository of all sorts of businesses. They have their phone numbers there, their websites if they have them, most don't actually, emails, things like that. So I found some industries that you know were somewhat okay for software development. Like they, they weren't you know old people who didn't know technology. And I started calling them. I got a phone number, a US phone number, so that they actually answered because apparently, or back then, I don't know if it's still the case, when uh, you call someone in the US from abroad, it, it charges them. The telephone provider charges them money to receive a phone call. Mm-hmm. It's the same to, here, though, if somebody from outside calls you. No, like I've never had that here for me. Oh, really? In any case, yeah, yeah. Uh, still, it was weird. So I got a US phone number. It cost me like $10 a month or something. Uh, and I started calling people. And I, I did the great job. I talked to them. I uh, did idea extraction. You can Google that. It's very cool. And I found a dip, a sort, all sorts of different problems and things that I could solve. The problem is that I didn't know how to sell. I sucked at selling, especially by the phone. Uh, and uh, I, I, I was, I don't know, I had uh, limiting beliefs. I didn't trust myself. And whenever I had to ask for money, I was blocked. I just couldn't. And I recognized this uh, limiting belief and I thought I should solve it. So I got a job as a sales agent, basically selling stocks. Cause I also wanted to learn about finance because that's what mm-hmm. is important. If you want to make money you need to know what to do with that money once you get it. Right. So I, I got into a, this company selling stocks and I sold for like three months and I built my skills. Now I knew how to sell by the phone. And then I got into the fitness niche and then I got on LinkedIn and I made a shitty profile and I went to a fitness and wellness group, like the biggest one. I just joined there. I then went to the list of the people who were in the group. I added like 500 of them, about 150 of them accepted. They didn't know me. I had no experience, nothing. (laughs) Just a blank, basically, uh, profile. I had an interesting picture, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) And then I started messaging them. It's like, hey, thanks for connecting, blah, blah, blah. Uh, can I interview you for a few things? Can I ask you a few questions? Can I consult you about your expertise in the fitness industry, whatever? And these were all basically personal trainers uh, or gym owners or people who had to, you know, various things related to uh, weightlifting and nutritional products and things like that. And out of 150 people, like 10 of them responded. We scheduled a call. I called them. And then I did idea extraction on them, basically. And I realized that they all had interesting problems, like things that I could do with software. But there was also a realization that a lot of these problems could just be solved by writing good stuff. Like their their main problem was that they didn't have enough clients. They just wanted to acquire more clients. And I, I knew how to acquire clients. I knew copywriting. I was acquiring money from sponsors, which is like, a hundred times harder. So I thought, why don't I just sell them copywriting? When I, I, I write, you know, an ad for them or something, like put a, a poster on the door of their gym so that they get more people to get like, instead of just a one month a program or a subscription to their gym, they can get like a six month subscription. And that basically pretty much doubled the lifetime value of those people who signed up for that offer because they usually, you know, they came for, for new year's Eve or whatever. They got a month, they went to the gym for a week and then stopped going. Well, what if they got the subscription for six months? 
Well, they didn't go just for a week. They went for like two months and then they went back home uh, or whatever. In any case, there was a, a definite gap in their revenue. Um, and we actually were able to measure that and they appreciated the, the solutions that I implemented. They were just very simple. I just wrote an ad and told them, put it there, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically what this allowed me to do by interacting with them, it gave me the opportunity to understand the value of copywriting that I could basically create money out of thin air. Just by writing a few words, I made money for them and they gave me some of it. And it made me realize this is an actual, you know, business. This is an actual skill that you can sell and scale up and do for other people. So I started studying what copywriting is and got into direct response and became basically a professional copywriter after like a year. Awesome. That's that's a really inspiring story, you know, because it really shows what's possible, you know, basically starting with little resources and navigating to where you can get into an industry which allows you to make quite a bit of money. And I mean, do mm-hmm. you think that somebody could follow in your footsteps today? Or do you think that the market has sort of changed and shifted and they would need to do different things? Uh, I don't think it's changed much at all. Uh, it, it probably has changed a little bit. It's probably a bit more saturated with people because, you know, people wisened up that they can actually do this. But I think the demand is growing or it has grown and it's probably higher than it was back then. So you can still do this with zero investment, pretty much. Like I didn't invest anything. Like back in the day, uh, I was, you know, all of my money I spent on food. That's it. Um, And like, I wanted to buy a new computer so I can play more games. Yeah. I didn't have money to invest on ads and like contacting people. I didn't understand that stuff. Like I was just a newbie. So I, I had zero investment whatsoever. Everything that I did, I did with other people's money. And uh, I scaled up from there because they appreciated what I did. And once I got the first three clients, I just got more and more clients because I got referrals from them. They appreciate what I did and they had friends. That's awesome. Yeah. They're like, well, look, this guy just wrote an email that I sent to the people and more people signed up to my stuff or more people bought my supplement or whatever. They're like, that's awesome. Here, I have like three other friends who also sell supplements. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to ask them. Of course, I knew that I should ask them, but they usually offered that on their own. Uh, Things are a bit more sophisticated now, so it's a bit more difficult to do that, but it should all work the same. And there's so much information out there that it's super easy to get into it. So what would be your advice to somebody who is basically in your position? Let's say that they're in university or maybe they have quit university and they want to get started in marketing. They basically want to learn online marketing. What would you say to them? Just do it. Uh, that, that's the, the simple way to put it. So there's uh, a bunch of ways in which you can market. Uh, the first way would be to find a problem that you can potentially solve. People have mostly solved most of the problems. If, if you're lucky enough to find a new problem, if you have the skills you know, to interview the right people and find the gaps in the market you can fill somehow, that's awesome. But you don't have to do that to get started because other people have already solved some problems and you can sell those solutions that other people have come up with to the people who have yet to solve their problems. So you can just start talking to people try to identify things that they haven't personally solved and then look around for ways to solve the things that they haven't found and then just sell it to them. 
just you don't even have to sell it in the sense that you don't have to convince them to do those things. It's a no-brainer sort of sell. It's like, hey, this costs you $1,000 a month. Here's this thing, which costs you $100 a month, which solves that problem. You make $900 a month profit. Here you go. Just give me $50 and I'll set it up for you. Mm-hmm. Um, like they don't even have to do anything. They just give you access to their system, whatever they have. Or if it's like a local business, you just go there and do it. <laughs> yeah. And you buy the service, you pay $100 a month, they pay you $250 a month and you make $150 a month profit. Then you find like 10 other people who have the same problem through their network, not your network. You ask this guy, hey, do you know any other people who might have the same issue? They're like, yeah, of course, everybody has this issue because yeah, why wouldn't they? And then you just find out of the 100 other people, you find like another 10 who have the same problem you sell the same solution to them. You even use these people that you've already helped with as authority figures. Like, hey, I'm working with this guy. I'm helping him do this stuff. This is how much he's making because of it. Can I do that for you as well? You're like, sure, let's give it a try. And with 10 people, you're basically making a salary or whatever. It depends where you're from. But for like someone in university, it's passive income. It's like $1,000 a month easily just by doing nothing, just by setting things up in like a couple of months. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's definitely something that's very appealing to anyone in that position. And I mean, I think that this whole thing revolves around finding problems, right? Because yeah. the, the solution always comes after, but it all starts from this developing this basically eye for spotting problems and seeing opportunities. What's your advice to that? Like, how can you develop this skill? Is it based just on talking with people or what would you recommend to somebody who is interested to get started with this? So there are two things that people need to understand. First, that value is subjective. Okay. Different people value things differently. So something that might cost someone a little bit, you know, like $10, $50 or whatever might cost a different person thousands of dollars every single month. So of course, a solution would be way more valuable for that person than the initial person. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have to realize uh, that things aren't equal and different people have different needs. So you have to talk to them and figure out what those needs are, try and help them. And mm-hmm. the other point that I want to make is that uh, you need empathy. You need to put yourself in these other people's shoes and empathize with them and try and figure out what their frustrations are, try and figure out what kind of things they struggle with most, what frustrates them the most, what things they hate at an emotional level, because those are the the biggest pains and solving the biggest pains is where the most value is. If you, if you stub a toe, you know, that's going to go away in a few hours. You're not going to sell someone a special ointment that solves, you know, toe stub pain. But if someone has arthritis, yeah, and they're in chronic pain every single day for like a, a decade, and they don't know what to do. It's just so infuriating because they, every time they get up off their chair or they like bend over to try and pick something off the ground, they just have this ugh, painful, burning pain that they cannot get rid of. Now, that is very valuable if you can get rid of it. So this is obvious once you start working in the healthcare niche um, because you have these hierarchies of different solutions for healthcare problems. Uh, and based on how big the pain is, you can charge more for the solution, the product that you're selling. Right. That's that's all super interesting. I wanted to ask you actually at this point, 
you sort of mentioned it, but do you do anything to basically vet your, your prospects or your clients? And how do you do that? Because the trouble that a lot of people who are in marketing run into when they try to do it freelance is that they have great skills, right? But then they approach these business owners and they identify their problems, but the business owner, for whatever reason, just doesn't have the money to solve it. You know, so he's like, yeah, I understand this is a problem. I understand uh, that it should be fixed, but I just don't have the resources to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so obviously to avoid that, you have to sort of vet your clients and to not waste your time. Even before you talk to them, you should know if it's worth basically your time talking with them. So do you have any process around that? And if so, how do you do it? Mm -hmm. That's a very important subject. Thank you for bringing it up. Basically, I don't want to be mean, but you don't want to deal with broke people. Uh, but there's two different kinds of broke. There's wealth broke, someone who doesn't have anything, and there's cash flow broke. And there are a lot of businesses which appear big, like they have a lot of employees, they have a big headquarters, they have stuff, but they're broke because they don't have cash flow. They they can't afford an extra $2,000 a month because they're basically at their limit and they're, they're very tight knit. Their margins are very low and they just can't afford things like that. And their mind isn't open for potential outside investments. If you just come along and say mm-hmm. like, Hey, I can do this for you. I can save your life. Like, Oh, I can't afford you to save my life. <laughs> it happens. Um, so the way I do it is I don't really deal with businesses like this. I deal with people uh, because if you have a solution that truly solves people's problems, they're going to come up with the money somehow. People have opportunities, like they have something stored aside or they can just get a loan or whatever. But corporate businesses don't have that liberty. You can't do that. So you always want to interact with business owners and you want to interact with business owners who have cash flow businesses. So if they have something that is based on sales, direct sales, that you can get instant, you know, an increase in revenue for them, that's good. Like with sales, they always have money put in, in advertising and in production costs and things like that. They have to keep the money flowing in so that it keeps flowing out and they have this, you know, uh, cycle, this commerce going on, which is what generates their profits. Or if they have like um, gym owners, they have subscriptions. Subscriptions are a form of cash flow. Every month, people pay money in because they come in, they use their uh, facilities. Um, So you don't want to deal with businesses which are, are, you know, stuck in a single place. Like, let's say uh, I I tried at one point working with um, apicultures. Mm -hmm. Um, People basically who keep bees and they sell honey. And on paper, it makes sense. Like, hey, they have a lot of bees. They have to keep the bees running. They sell honey. But, but it's not actually a cash flow business because the way that it works is that they don't do anything for like three months. Then they get an influx of a lot of honey. Then they sell it in bulk. And then that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're doing nothing for another three months. So it's very seasonal. Uh, and I've also worked with another type of business, which is uh, in the tourist industry. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, ho- hotels and stuff like that. And on paper, it makes sense. Oh, it's, it seems like a cash flow business. You get people who come in and rent your stuff all the time. Well, it depends what kind of people they are. So if it's like short-term weekend stuff, that might make sense, but only if it's like a luxury type business. If it's a regular run-of-the-mill bed and breakfast type place that, that doesn't have the right mindset for it because they're always in the scarcity mindset. We're going back all the way to this idea. So my primary way to vet people is to try to empathize with them and try to figure out, are they a person with an abundance mindset or a scarcity mindset? Right. So that's, that's actually super interesting right here. So do you try to gauge their mindset? And if you see that they don't have the right mindset, do you sort of step back? Or do you try to basically break through their limiting beliefs? What's your process there? Uh, okay. So I tried initially to educate people. So basically in Europe, copywriting isn't really a thing. Like most people just want to do things on their own. They're like, oh, well, well I'm going to hire someone in-house. So they handle all my writing. And instead of hiring a, a copywriter, like a direct response copywriter who's an expert on uh, marketing and sales, they hire a PR person <laughs> or a technical writer, right. you know, yeah, yeah to, to do their manuals and do their brochures and do all of the different, and, and it's just a very generalist. So the approach here is not really that specialized and uh, trying to educate people like, hey, you, you need a specialist who only focuses on the sales part of your copy so that they can bring higher conversions and more revenue in that particular area that they're an expert in. It's very, very difficult. It's like fighting against windmills that just slowly move slowly, slowly. You can't, you can't accelerate them. So I, I've given up in that endeavor. I don't think educating people into understanding that what you're doing is valuable for them makes sense. Like they need to, at least philosophically, or in terms of their personality or how they're set up in business. Yeah. yeah, They need to already be set up to understand that, hey, this guy can just come into my business and give me a a product or a service or some form of a solution that just grows my business overnight or over a period of time, depending on what the solution is. So would you say that as a marketer, you're better off or for example, in your case as a copywriter, you're better off going directly to people who are used to hiring copywriters, or can you still try to reach out to people who are not so much used to it, like they've never done it before, but they have that growth mindset and they're open to the idea? Either or, or is one preferable to the other? Yeah, you can do both, but it depends how much money you want to make. Which, which brings me to like a few years after I got into this. So I started off in the fitness niche. I built up my chops, you know, writing copy for all these people. I got a bunch of results. I got a somewhat of a portfolio, though I, I've never used a portfolio. Um, and then I realized, hey, this, this kind of sucks. There's a lot of sketchy stuff in this industry. Like a lot of people were pitching to me like, hey, let's sell this supplement or sell this heart disease medicine or whatever. And I, I, I like 90% of copywriting is research. So I would look at these people, I would vet them, I would research their products, research their marketing machine, their business in general, and figure out that what they were selling was crap. Like 
that wasn't a good product. And it was actually scamming people for their money and not giving, you know, the solution that they actually wanted to get. And for healthcare stuff, that is pretty sketchy on an ethical perspective because, you know, they're sick, they need a solution. If you give them a fake solution, they're not going to get better. They think they're getting better, but you're just stopping them from finding a real solution. Yeah, but they will still buy because at that point, they're probably willing to try anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they might get a placebo, so there is some marginal benefit, but it's not, you know, it was too much for me. get the real thing. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I realized that, hey, this is too much effort for me to align my work with my ethics. So let's find a different niche. Let's find a better niche. Let's, let's move out from this. And I, I moved into finance yeah, because I, I started off, you know, in finance with the sales that I did mm-hmm. and I, I studied and I had the experience and I had the skills and the understanding of the industry. So I was like, okay, money is here. Technically, this should make a lot more money. Let's find things out. And um, I, I did find things out. Basically, uh, in the finance niche, there's a whole bunch of uh, investment advisories or however you want to call them. There's people who sell people information about how to invest better. And this is like a multi-billion dollar industry. There's a whole lot of money in it. And it's built by copywriters. And all they do is they just write a lot of copy and they have a few people who teach them how to invest better and make money. Um, so I went into there and again, I, I didn't really have a portfolio. I didn't really have any practical experience, but these people are hungry. They are hungry for copywriters. They just need more and more offers because the market is huge. There's a lot of money in it and they have just so much demand for more offers and more opportunities to sell to these people. So I start emailing them and just calling them and getting in contact with them and trying to find people to get me to write sales letters, basically, and emails and other pieces of content in the finance niche. And I found a couple of people. And it was basically like three times more money overnight, like just by switching the niche, pretty much. Yeah, um, I agree. The, the finance re- niche is, is one of the best, I think, for copywriters. And I've mm-hmm. certainly made a lot of money in the finance niche as well. The, the thing here with finance, I think that there is indeed a lot of money in it. So that's one thing. And the other thing is you mentioned that these people, they're open to hiring you and giving you a chance, even if you don't have that much experience. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that this is true because compensations tend to be based on results. And Mm -hmm. there's a minimal loss for them if your copy doesn't work out. You know, they try it a couple of days, they send some traffic to it, the results aren't there, that's it, they throw it away. They haven't lost that much. And you only get paid with a real big money in most cases when you actually deliver them results. So it's low risk for them. Yeah, and if you're in their area, like in the US or the UK or wherever these places usually are situated, they're actually willing to pick you up and train you. Like if you don't have any experience or whatever, they're so hungry for more copywriters that you can just go there and be like, hey, I want to become a copywriter. And they give you a job, a salary, all the training that you need from like the top tier experts with like decades of experience. And they give you solid contracts, you know, to write offers and the chance, you know, to show what you've got just like that. 
Like you don't have to sell anything. You don't have to convince them. They just want more people. So uh, I know there's a few in Baltimore and a few in like uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, London, of course. Like there's just so many of these businesses um, that need more copywriters. So you're asking me what kind of advice I would give people. Well, if you're interested in financial stuff and you're interested in writing for money and for, you know, creating value and doing resourceful stuff, try and find one of these financial advisories and uh, try and get hired. It's right. not that hard. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great thing to do if you're just getting started out and you're going to basically shorten the learning curve big time. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that's, that's special about copywriting is that you really learn by reading other people's copy and interacting with copywriters and seeing how they make the decisions that they do make. You know, and you shorten your learning curve big time if you have a panel of experts who who are basically going to read what you write and criticize it and tell you how you can make it better. So Mm -hmm. absolutely, for somebody who is just starting out, that's a, a great way to do it. I also wanted to ask you, because it's related to this, uh, what would you say that your favorite resources when it comes to marketing and copywriting are? As in books, programs, you know, what would you recommend to people? If somebody asks you basically, what should I read? You know, what, what would you say? Oh, that, that's really hard to answer because there's just so <laughs> much stuff. Uh, but uh, so uh, the primary way of learning about sales and marketing and copywriting and all of these things, advertising in general, is by being immersed in it. Okay, just doing it, reading it, learning it, buying products and getting assaulted with advertising, just being so far involved in it that it becomes you know part of your life. And then you build this osmosis type of understanding. Uh, but beyond that, I'd say books and courses are probably the primary way that you want to acquire knowledge and the more sophisticated theoretical understanding of how to do these things. So I would recommend perhaps uh, Cashvertising. That's a great book. Uh, for copywriting specifically, you can start up with uh, The Boron Letters by Gary Halbert. Yeah, uh, they're, they're fantastic. Of, yeah, great insight there. Uh, for general marketing, I mentioned yeah, Fastlane Millionaire. So it's just marketing essence right there. It's all you need to know for business and uh, everything like that. Uh, And personally, I I prefer more decentralized form of knowledge. So if you just start Googling about these things, you you learn uh, so much interesting stuff in in bite-sized pieces, you know, chunks that you can easily process and apply and train and build up. So you're not overwhelmed, you know, with hundreds of pages of information. So um, if you look online for like emotional writing or... uh, conversion copywriting or how to write headlines, simple stuff. You know, you're going to find a lot of cool information on Google, uh, very superficial in terms of uh, how far you need to dig. And that should be enough to get you started. And after that, you're going to encounter people like by working in this industry, you're going to find people who just talk about these things. Like, oh, I I read this book. Oh, it had such awesome insight. There was something in there that I didn't hear before. Well, you're going to read that book after that if you're, you know, you want to do it. Um, and you're not just going to get the initial extra piece of insight. You're also going to get the foundational 80% that everybody includes in all of their books. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that all sounds fantastic to me. 
And these are great resources. Like I've read uh, all the resources that you've mentioned, Cash Advertising, The Borrowing Letters, The Millionaire Fastlane. They're all great reads. And I think that everybody who wants to be in online marketing should at least read them once, uh, you know, yeah. and get that knowledge even up front. And it's a great way to get started. One thing that really makes you stand out based on your story so far, Iwan, is the fact that you didn't go uh, the route that most people uh, do when they want to start. Most people would just open an Upwork account nowadays, at least, and they would just start trying to get clients like that. And then, you know, they, they complain that, you know, I've spent so much time on Upwork and I'm barely making any money. You know, I'm barely making a thousand dollars a month. So I think that by going this through this more difficult route that you went through, you can get much farther. Yeah. And I mean, did this happen on purpose for you? Like, were you aware about the platforms like Upwork and other places like that and chose to focus your interest elsewhere? And if so, how did that come about? Like, what was, what was your thought process? Uh, well, it was more natural. I mean, initially I wasn't aware about freelancing at all. I didn't know that what I was doing was freelancing. So I didn't know about freelancing platforms and things like that. But as I started doing things and I became more professional, let's say, in my approach, I did encounter them. And I started off, you know, on uh, Odesk and uh, Elance, like freelancer.com or whatever. And those worked fine, uh, but they weren't the primary way of doing things. They were like a supplementary thing. And they're basically the lazy way. Like when you don't want to put in the effort, you have these platforms, you can just apply to people's jobs that they like you already know that they want whatever you have to offer and have to actually do the groundwork. Uh, but I think the roundabout way is a lot more profitable uh, and a lot more um, productive in terms of actually building your skills and building your marketing ability in general. And around that, the idea of general understanding uh, I think that's what makes a marketer great. Like being a specialist makes you very, very good. Okay. And it makes you a lot of money. Um, if you're the best at writing emails, you're going to be fucking amazing. You're going to be super rich. Okay. But in order to be a solid marketer that can, you know, just go into any business and make their money, uh, you need a very general understanding. So I also want to recommend, besides the things that we mentioned before, which are like specific for marketing, there's things such as uh, Influence by Robert Cialdini or um, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow uh, or like books by Harry Brown, and, uh, uh, psychology type books, how to make friends or how to win friends and influence people. And I mentioned The Roundabout, one of my favorite books, I would say, for uh investments and economics and uh, marketing and applies generally in life uh, it's called the Dow of Capital it's basically about the idea of roundabout investing and how by not being super direct going you know pinpoint whatever the easiest barrier of entry is for the particular solution you're looking for and instead going on the roundabout way the uh, less beaten path okay you have a lot more opportunity of you know, winning of 
creating right. value and doing productive right. things. So how does that work in terms of investment? I mean, going the roundabout way, like, can you give an example of that? Because it's sort of abstract. I mean, I haven't read that book uh, mm-hmm. and it's hard for me to wrap my mind around it. Uh, right. So uh, it, it, it's based on, um, you know, the Sun Tzu art of war, you know, and, and a lot of different things like this, like uh, it has a lot of uh, militaristic sort of analogies. Philosophy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which are very relevant in investment because in war, you're basically investing human capital, soldiers and logistical resources, you know, to acquire different benefits. Yeah. But the main aspect is the idea of patience and about doing by not doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, people forget, like uh, most people are very short term event oriented. Like they have a very narrow uh, time perspective. So the one thing is now like, oh, how do I get clients? Oh, I'm going to go to a place where clients are and I'm going to get them. You know, very direct, very narrow focus because all they see is the event, getting the client. But they don't see the process of first building a relationship with a person, understanding their problems, empathizing with them, all of that stuff. And then finally, once you have an understanding, a mutual understanding, rapport, relationships, yeah, then you acquire them as a client. And that client that you acquired after the roundabout building up of the relationship is a thousand times more valuable than a random client that you got off of you know, Upwork and you worked for a $100 project and you never talked with him ever again because you just one freelancer out of a hundred, you know, from them. Um, this sounds so, to me like a distinction between basically being tactical, you know, and trying to find a quick solution and being strategic right? You know, and uh, doing something that maximizes your long-term uh, benefits. Mm-hmm. So in that book, one of the main comparisons that is used is between a, a forest of evergreen trees, you know, which takes many, many years to grow, decades, even a hundred years before you can actually, you know, cut it up for valuable wood and agriculture. Okay. Wheat, uh, with wheat, you plant it. And then at the end of the year or after six months or however long you've got your grain and you can sell it on the market. So uh, the investment perspective for grain is about six months or a year because half the year it doesn't grow. So every year, you have the production cycle. But with a, a evergreen forest, the production cycle is 40 years, 80 years, 120 years. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what is a better investment? How do you take a piece of land and most uh, efficiently put it to good use? And in certain places, you know, planting grain is better because food is valuable, it's scarce, if you eat you know, food to grow cities and develop society. But in other places, in a mountainous region, for example, you, you don't need wheat. It doesn't grow fast enough. It doesn't grow well. So you have trees which grow better in that particular region. But the, the whole philosophy of it is that the trees are very patient, okay? And planting these trees takes a long time. It might take more than your lifetime for them to actually bring a return on investment, but once they bring that return on investment, it's much greater than all the ROI of the wheat over that entire period. Right, right. So yeah. it, it sounds like it's about taking care, basically, of the entire context. 
you know, and not just uh, going with something because you heard somebody else do it or whatever, you know, but rather really assessing and coming to terms with your situation and acting from that larger strategic context. Right, exactly. Yeah, um, there's also a great book which goes over this, but it labels the distinction as strategic versus tactical. And it's also about marketing, and it's a great one. It's written by, um, by uh, what's his name, by Chet Holmes. Basically, the book goes into this distinction uh, and shows how if you act tactical for the short term, you're actually going to ruin the long term for you. So the book is The Ultimate Sales Machine. Um, mm. it's, it's a great read. And it also teaches you about how you have to build an organization, how you train people. And that's very relevant for somebody who does marketing in the context of, you know, being an entrepreneur and growing and scaling right. a business. Yeah, this is very valuable. And not just if you're trying to grow and scale a business, but if you're just an individual trying to, you know, build a career for yourself or build a way to market your personal skills, you still can benefit a lot from these things like just understanding uh, internally the idea of delayed gratification and opportunity cost and expected value and things like that makes such a huge difference in how you approach your decision making and it gets you so much closer to accurate risk management yeah that super super duper increases your success as a business owner in general so uh, i'd say use if you're just starting out Start off, you know, just by marketing your skills and use this opportunity to build your understanding of more complex mechanisms in terms of risk management and uh, dealing with opportunity. And as you're building these skills and you're understanding the world more and more and you get a better understanding of marketing in general, you'll be much more better positioned later on to have a successful business. Because these skills lie at the foundation of entrepreneurship and business building. The problem is that if you're just, you don't have them yet and you just go into business, you know, head on, chances are that you're going to fail and you're going to learn these skills quickly and efficiently through those failures. But those failures might be very big. They might be too daunting. They might, you know, leave scars in terms of your psychology and your, your mindset. And it might stop you from pursuing business ever again if they're too big initially. So if you're not ready, you know, you don't have the skills yet or the, the capital to fail uh, in starting off a business, then this is definitely a good way to go. Just, you know, as a freelancer or as a, even an employee in the right niches or industries to develop these skills. So I would recommend just getting started today. Figure out where you want to go and start going. Do you think that it's possible to sort of be an employee but be entrepreneurial at the same time? Uh, a lot of people nowadays call uh, talk about intrapreneurs. So basically yeah. people who are employees but they take initiative in a company and they develop basically a new area of business or a new source of cash flow or whatever it is. So what's, what's your take on that? Exactly. Yeah, I, I was about to bring up the term entrepreneur. Uh, but it's definitely an avenue that you can approach. And I even have an example with myself. So um, after the fitness niche thing and in between that and the finance thing, mm -hmm. I had a stint with a business 
where I was like, you know what? I need something more local. I need like a community to feel like I belong, all sorts oh, of I stupid see, yeah. things. Yeah. And I wanted, you know, some uh, material gains. Like I, I was making money, but I, I couldn't do anything with that money. It's like, oh, I don't know. Like I want, I want to experience fancy rich life or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I found this business and I saw that they were looking for a marketing person like two months ago or whatever. The, the, the ad wasn't available anymore. They probably hired someone. They're like, hey, if they were looking for marketing, then they're looking for marketing now. You're never not looking for marketing. Absolutely. So I, I found the contact details of the CEO and I sent them an email. I was like, hey, I saw that you had this need. I have solutions for your need, expertise, skills, whatever. This is me. Let's talk. And then we talked. He gave me a call. Uh, we met for dinner. I met with his wife for dinner. And then two days later, I was working for his business. Wow. Uh, wow that's awesome. Yeah. And it, it was an interesting business, basically a, a castle here in the, the resort where I'm living, basically. It's a touristy type thing, but uh, it's all fancy. Like they had uh, uh, classical music concerts, famous people coming along. Uh, like they have a fancy restaurant on the bottom floor with like French cuisine that is way too expensive and I would never eat there in my life. But I, I was like, I want to eat there, but I'm never going to pay for it. So I'm going to work for this guy and I'm going to be like, part of my deal, I get to eat there whenever I want. And that's what I got. So part of my deal, I, I, I was able to work from home. I was like 50 minutes away. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, but I, I had all of my freedoms that I acquired on my journey. Like I didn't want to sacrifice anything to get this job. But I knew that I could provide value for this guy without sacrificing anything. So I had location freedom, I had time freedom, and I, I got all the benefits without any of the costs. So I went and I, I wrote copy for this guy, and I also handled PR and a bunch of other things. But I got to ride in his fancy Mercedes, and I, I got to eat at his fancy restaurant, and I got to meet the fancy opera singers and whatever. Wow, that's 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 quite something. That's awesome. And I mean, if you're going to work a job, that's the kind of job you want. Yeah, yeah. That, so I thought it was a dream job. Like th that's the way I viewed it. I was like, okay, this is the dream job. I'm gonna go there, and I'm gonna. If it's not, I'm gonna make it. And I, I went there, and I had you know big plans. I tried to make changes. Which people don't like, by the way. Um, and yeah. I, I try to improve the business and try to be entrepreneurial inside that business because. My relationship was not as an employee. Like I, I wasn't just hired to do a particular task. I had a job description, sure, for appearance sake, but uh, I was at the same level basically, or like right under the CEO. I was answering directly to the CEO. I was independent. I had autonomy inside that business. And I, I got to do things that I viewed would bring you know benefits and it would improve the whole thing. So I was basically literally an entrepreneur in the context of that business. And it wasn't just one business. It was like three different businesses in that uh, cooperative type situation. Like the restaurant was its own thing. So I collaborated with a chef to try to improve the menu and do some marketing stuff. The, the castle with guides and like all those things were their own separate business. And there was also like a, a commercial business where they had you know products that they sold and things like that. So I was working on three fronts, trying to improve their systems, improve their marketing, and create extra value from an entrepreneurial perspective. Mm -hmm. So you can get in this position from an employee position. Like you can just go there and talk to the boss and negotiate like, hey, I want 
these additional responsibilities and these additional freedoms, and I want to be paid in this particular way. And as long as you have, you know, the confidence, I guess, to know what you want and the value proposition that you offer to that person makes sense, like they gain more than they pay you, uh, then it's rare that they would say no, as long as they have the right mentality for it. And this guy did. So before I engaged into this, I, I vetted him. Like I wanted to make sure that he was, you know, a proper entrepreneur and he was because he wasn't Romanian. Mm, <laughs> He's a, a foreign investor. Yeah. <laughs> he came with, you know, foreign ideals. He has a, a whole bunch of different businesses. He has like multiple different ventures and things like that. So he was the, the proper target for this type of entrepreneurial venture. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who worked under him who were Romanian were not. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was the problem, I see. That was the problem. So uh, uh, through my efforts, what I encountered in that experience was a lot of roadblocks. And I felt like I was hitting my head on the wall every time I tried to do things because people don't like change. Like, who is this guy who just came out of nowhere and now he's demanding that we do things differently? We've been doing these things for years and they've been working fine. You know, mm-hmm. So uh, uh, direct change never works. So I had to do things uh, a different way, you know, and try to bypass these people pretty much and try to improve things um, like on top of what they were doing without changing whatever they were already doing. And there were a lot of different roadblocks in terms of the actual um, company philosophy and the, the personality of the people who were there. So they were very conservative in terms of the actual things that were going on there. And uh, like, uh, they thought I was a spy. Uh, like, where did I come from? From, from Bucas, who is this guy? He's not even from here. Uh, yeah, because I, I basically, I just moved in the area for like six months and then I got hired there with like oh, this expertise. See. Yeah, that nobody had anywhere in like 200 kilometers around this place. Uh, like nobody knows what a, a copywriter is. Nobody knows marketing. These guys mm-hmm. are just pencil pushers, yeah? So I was coming with like American understanding of things, bring it into this company. It's like, uh, they didn't like that. Uh, so yeah, if you want to do the entrepreneurial stuff, you need to find a company which has the right philosophy. So ideally it would be like a startup. Startups are very good for this um, because they're generally entrepreneurial. Like you have people who start them up are literally entrepreneurs. So if you come over and they hire you as a sort of employee, you have a lot more opportunity and freedom to you know, upgrade your agreement from just an employee where you do a particular task and you're like a robot to having more autonomy and more freedom and more opportunity to create value. And also because you're creating more value through your entrepreneurial efforts, entrepreneurial efforts, uh, you also get the opportunity to ask for more money or ask for equity in that startup uh, or do various things. So instead of being just an employee, you become a partner in that business. In the business, absolutely. So I think that that's actually, if you ask me, what's the simplest way, let's say, to make a lot of money, I would say that it is to join a startup where you have a strong team alongside with you and you have access to capital. And I mean, if the company makes it big, you're also going to make it big. Obviously not as much as the CEO or the owner, but you're still going to be easily a millionaire. Uh, and I mean, I've seen yeah. this happen. I know somebody who used to work from quite a few years ago in UiPath. And of course, they've just gone public now. 
uh, on the New York Stock Exchange and the value is 36 billion. A lot of people who worked there from the beginning, they're millionaires today. And you see, all of that is possible because they've worked in the right place. You know, they didn't waste their time working at a government job or pushing mm-hmm. pencils somewhere or doing something stupid. You know, they actually searched for companies where they could add value, you know, and companies that had potential. Yeah, it is definitely possible to be on the fast lane inside a company where you're not, you know, the owner or like a majority. And I would say it's much, it's much easier. You know, yeah, it is definitely easier. I mean, the, the owner goes through so much pain, you know, <laughs> to make the company work. Uh, ultimately, I think he's the one who goes through most of the pain to actually make it work. He's the one who takes on most of the stress. Whereas everybody else, they sort of uh, get their energy from the team you know, and if you're surrounded by other smart people and you're all working towards a certain direction, things tend to sort of start developing by themselves in that sort of environment. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that the pressure is much lower. So basically the, the risk reward ratio, or rather I should say the reward to risk ratio is much greater as an employee rather than um, a founder or a CEO. I mean, the founder and the CEO, they assume the entire risk, the employees, even if the startup goes belly up, they, they take their experience, you know, they've lost no capital, they've disappointed no investors, and then they can be on to the next startup. So I would say that if somebody just wants to get rich, the fastest way to do it is to get yourself in a strong startup, in a strong team, you know, and just work there and make it happen. And if that one doesn't work out, try to pick a better one next time and keep going from one to one until you find one, which is a winner. Yeah, I agree. And there's a lot of skills which you can use to do this. So you can get an equity-based position if you're just like a sales agent or if you're like a web developer or a general programmer. Anything. I mean, if you're new yeah. in a startup, they don't have money, right? So they're going to give equity also to motivate. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So just, you know, find businesses with uh, potential, try to find ways to create value for them, be value-oriented in general. And uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities. Uh, you can look on websites such as uh, AngelList, Co. Uh, there's just so many startups looking for people in so many different areas, and they're just advertising that they're giving equity away. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, places like um, you know, Y Combinator, like it's so many big companies worth billions of dollars have sprouted from these venues that you just have direct access to. And if you have skills that you can offer and put to the table, just go there and do it. It's mm-hmm. not that difficult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that. For, for you to be an entrepreneur directly and start your own business, I think that you also need to desire something more than money. You know, you, you need to desire mm-hmm. to sort of make an impact and really transform something, change something. Uh, because if you don't have that sort of desire, it, at some point it just gets so hard that you're just going to quit and give up, you know, because it's, it's not going to be worth it for you in that mindset to keep going. And I think that every person, they should have a clear idea of where they stand on that. Like, do I want to be the guy who's going to take all the risk and go through all this loneliness and pain and so on, building a huge business, 
you know, and making a huge change? Or do I just want to be part of uh, a team which does this? Mm -hmm. I think that in order to be satisfied, it's very important to make the right choice when it comes to this. And so to understand yourself. I agree. Yeah. And if you want your own business, it, it needs to be your baby. Like you need to commit to it and bring it all the way to adulthood. If you just, <laughs> you know, bring it out, you create it, whatever you invest a couple of years in, and you get like a, a post-term abortion of your business, it's not going to work. Okay? You're <laughs> going to waste a lot of time and effort and resources. And you would be better off if you just, you know, signed up to someone else's business and help them build their baby instead. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense, you know. So that's why I say yeah. you need some to have a desire that's greater than just money. Yeah. Uh, there was you need a purpose. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. So it's about purpose. So no, no, yeah. no it's uh, absolutely fine. So you brought something that's really interesting, actually. Purpose. And, so, and the real clear vision, like you need to know exactly what you're trying to accomplish and what great goal you're doing with this business. So that yeah. even when things aren't working and you have to, you know, bring money from home, like sell your house or get another mortgage so you can fund the business because it's going to collapse otherwise, you need to justify that. You can't just give up. Yeah, you need to like know that. why you're doing it, basically. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's the purpose. And I think that purpose is very powerful. So in business, I think it's essential. And um, it goes back to one of my favorite books that I still recommend to this day to entrepreneurs, which is Think and Grow Rich. And one of the things that's emphasized right in the beginning there is that you need to have a clear major purpose. And that needs to be clear and you need to remind yourself constantly of that purpose. And I think that as an entrepreneur, um, that's a must, you know, like you absolutely have to have that purpose and it needs to be crystal clear what it is and why it's important to you. Because otherwise, when you get punched in the face and it's going to happen sooner or later, you're going to feel like giving up. And if you don't have that purpose to rely on, well, then you will give up, you know? So <laughs> that's just how yeah. it goes. Right. You mentioned earlier when you, when we discussed about the book, about the, the Tao, you mentioned this idea of non-doing and just hanging around in entrepreneurial circles and being involved in this world. I've noticed that there are two different tendencies that people tend to adopt, let's say, when it comes to solving a problem. Some people have the mindset that you sort of have to let go and go with the flow and let life guide you, whereas other people think that you sort of have to envision how things must be and then actively pursue them with like a burning desire to succeed. I was just wondering, where do you stand on that? Basically, do you favor more the approach of um, surrendering, let's say, to the present moment and seeing what comes out of that or more the approach of having a burning desire and using that to sort of push yourself to success? Probably somewhere in the middle, but leaning more towards the burning desire thing. Although I wouldn't describe it necessarily that way. Uh, I, I think it's a a matter of locus of control here, whether you have an internal or an external locus of control. There are things that you can influence yourself and change and enact that change into your reality or not. Um, and I, I think having an internal locus of control, believing that you, in fact, 
as, as your, as the actor in this reality can actually change reality and make an impact through your actions is integral. It's necessary to being a successful person. Like if you don't believe that what you're doing has an impact or has an effect on what, on what is happening around you, or if you believe that you're at the whims of the things happening around you, like whether it's luck or the powers that be or whatever, you're just not going to do a very good job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Like, I mean, you have to believe that uh, what you're doing uh, both has a purpose and has a chance to succeed. If you think Mm -hmm. that it has no chance to succeed, you're probably not going to do it. Right. So it's very important to believe that you can do things, believe that what you're doing is going to lead to certain outcomes and then guide yourself to the outcomes that you want to accomplish, yeah, your purpose or your vision, whatever you want to call it. The place where the not doing comes in is that you don't have to do the first thing that comes along. Like opportunities are everywhere. There's always a, an abundance of opportunities, but some opportunities are better than others. And if you just pick the first one that comes along and just take it and just go with it, go with the flow, take action, go, 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 then once you're engaged in this opportunity, there are better ones that come along and they just fly by and you miss them and you can't, you know, maximize the amount of growth or progress or value that you create because you're already engaged in the inefficient things that came along first. So this is what most people do, actually. Like if you see someone who uh, just got fired or like th- their business went under and they lost their job or whatever, what do they do? They throw their CVs out there in the, in the wind to like a hundred different companies or whatever. And then they get interviewed and the first offer that they get, you're going to accept that offer, mm-hmm. be, you know, because being unemployed is painful. They, they need to be employed because otherwise they don't have money to eat or whatever, because they don't have, you know, the freedom, the opportunity to wait, to be patient. Yeah. They don't have savings. They don't have, you know, a, a runway of like six months, a year or whatever, just to live without having to worry about getting the first opportunity that comes along. Uh, that, that's where the, the DAO philosophy comes into place. Right. But I mean, the, that's the risk with that sort of philosophy, because I mean, we also have people who just sit there and meditate the whole day and they say, maybe the next one, maybe the next one, you know, mm-hmm. I won't go for this opportunity. I'll wait for another one. I'll wait for another one. And by waiting for the best, you know, they never go for any of them. You know, that's, right. I think that that's a big risk with this approach. Sure. So you, you can't be a perfectionist. It's not about the best, but it's about being decisive at the right moment. And of course, identifying what the right moment is takes, you know, experience and skill and a level of intuition or, you know, knowledge and some systems in place that help you better identify these things. Uh, so you do have to take action eventually. You do have to be decisive when you do take action, but it shouldn't be on the first opportunity unless that first opportunity qualifies as you know a very good one. I'd say that most people are leaning too much towards the going with the flow part of things and just uh, being constantly engaged in things and not having the freedom and the room to accept greater opportunities and to invest in longer term perspectives of, of growth and development. Okay. So b- by, by promoting this idea, since most people are too far to the left, pushing them more to the right gets them closer to where they are supposed to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. 
I see where you're coming from. Yeah. So earlier you you mentioned how uh, when you made the switch from um, fitness to finance, initially mm-hmm. you were good basically at marketing, but you're bad at sales. So how do how does that how do you make sense of that sort of? Because mo- many people intuitively would say that if you're a good marketer, you're by default a good salesman. So what do you think is the difference between the two of them and what actually helped you become good at sales? Uh, Okay, so generally marketing is about communication, okay? And and most products that get sold don't have to be sold, quote unquote. Um, So the way that they are marketed is basically about putting them in front of the right audience, the people who are already hungry to buy that product. They're already in such great pain that if you put the solution in front of them, they have no option but to say yes to it. Okay, There's no selling involved there. They're just about identifying the problem and the solution, just getting them close together. Um, so th- that's the most efficient form of marketing and probably the best way that you should do things. But where sales comes into place is where the gap between the two is a bit larger. Like perhaps people are not already uh, in a sufficient pain. So you need to agitate their pain a little bit, make them realize that, hey, this is actually a problem that I need to solve. So I'm going to take some action in order to do it. Most people are not ready to take action. And that's where sales comes in. You need to not just communicate the product or the solution to their problem. You have to communicate the emotional aspects of why that solution is important, how exactly it services them and solves their problem and all the other things that go around it. So how did you get good at sales in the end? Practice. That That's the main thing. So Was it like one thing that once you learned that one thing, it sort of clicked and it all went along? Or was it more like a gradual thing that just came along with practice? Like what exactly was the thing holding you back in sales in the first place? Mm, probably mindset issues, beliefs, things like that. Uh, like some people, you know, uh, you see them and they're like, oh, that guy is a natural salesman. <laughs> he's, just, he's just so good. Like some of these, maybe you've seen on YouTube, perhaps a video of people who just are door-to-door salesmen. And they're just so charismatic and so easy to listen to. That you just, you have to buy whatever they're selling if you don't need it. Yeah. The way those people do things is because they have the right mindset. They have the right personality for it, the right things. Yeah. Um, and they've subconsciously or naturally developed the skills needed to be a successful salesman. Well, I didn't have those things. Like I'm, I'm a very introverted guy. I didn't really interact with people very much. I never tried to convince them for things. Like I don't need to convince people for anything. If they don't want to agree with me, that's their problem. I don't care. Yeah. So I didn't have the foundational understanding of the, the you know, soft skills of salesmanship. So I had to develop those in order to be a successful salesman. So I put myself in the environment where I could do that. And then I started doing it and I Mm -hmm. sucked at it. I sucked really, really bad. And I kept doing it and I kept doing it. I didn't know why. And people would tell me, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. But those things came naturally to them. I couldn't do those things. They just were not me or impossible. But I tried and I tried and then I didn't try and I tried something else and Every once in a while, like with any sort of learning curve, there's like a, a soft progression and then there's some realization 
some paradigm shift. And then there's like a, a, a jump upwards, a spike in the learning curve. And then you plateau and then you, you get some new information, some new knowledge, you start ascending softly again. And then you get a, another paradigm shift, and bam, you spike again. Uh, so I wouldn't say there's like one event which makes you a great salesman, one realization or whatever, but it's a series of realizations that occur after you accrue enough effort and enough investment in that particular task or discipline, in this case, selling. So that happened to me. I just, I called people eight hours a day, business people, and I talked to them. Most people just, you know, shut the phone off and sweared at me and were aggressive about it because they didn't appreciate being cold called, whatever. I got over it. Uh, It was bad only for like the first two days and then I got used to it. And after a while, I realized, hey, I need to be more natural. What, what does that mean? You know, sounding natural when you speak to people, when you still like, there's nothing natural about this. You're reading off a script, you know, you're, you're trying to <laughs> shove uh, words in their mouth and ideas in their head and trying to uh, basically uh, bully them down a certain path in terms of the, the rhetoric of your argument or whatever. There's nothing natural about it. So how do you sound natural when you do it? Well, by not caring about what they say, by having certain, you know, uh, benchmarks, some points in which, you know, the the conversation gravitates towards and just try to get through them, pinpoints. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you let things drift off a little bit. You you don't apply strong resistance. Uh, A lot of people do this wrong because they just, they fight. They fight against the other person. For them, it's a battle. You call the person, now you're in combat trying to make them do something they don't want to do. That's wrong. You don't want to make them do anything that they want to do. You want to identify whether this is something that they do want to do and then show them that it is something that they do want to do. If you realize, yeah, if you realize along the way that the person doesn't want to buy this thing, it's not useful for them, just call someone else. It's a waste of time. You're never going to convince them. Yeah, I mean, you absolutely have to qualify people when you get to the level of sales, because otherwise you're going to waste your time with some people who are never going to buy, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's that's an essential part um, of sales, learning uh, basically who is a good prospect and who is not. And the earlier Mm -hmm. you can do it in the sales cycle, the better you're going to be. But what you said earlier is important And that is that you ended up finding a style for selling that worked for you uh, because you noticed that you had a different personality than the other guys and some other style was working much better for you than um, for them. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's absolutely true. So I actually have the philosophy that um, there is no one best uh, sales style. You know, the best sales style is the best combination for the given personality of the salesman. Mm -hmm. You know, so given that personality, there is a certain style which is the best, but there is no best generally because we always get people who ask like, oh, what's the best sales book or what's the best salesman or uh, this kind of stuff. And I think that it varies and it depends a lot. It's contextual, it's relative, and it depends on the personality and how that personality best feels natural in the sales process and can execute fully. Exactly. It's not just uh, the best fit for the person who's doing the selling, but also for the person you're selling to. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, so in my case, in my experience, like is it, I had a good time with a certain subset of women. So all of these people in the business, nice. like the way they were approached or, or the way they were taught and who basically was selected as a successful salesman in the business, uh, it was all just hyper-aggressive, hyper-masculine guys. And with other businessmen who are hyper-aggressive, hyper-masculine and uh, responded well to the competitive nature of the selling, it worked well for them. But I wasn't like that. I was non-confrontational. I was soft-spoken. I was like letting them do whatever. And those hyper-competitive people were kind of walking over me, getting on top of me. And I couldn't, you know, guide them to where I wanted to get them. They just, you know, took the reins and controlled me. And that was it. And I lost the sale. But these other people, because they were hyper-aggressive, they immediately put off all of these softer sort of basically a feminine type audience yeah who didn't appreciate being aggressed basically by some random salesman they wanted you know time they wanted uh, space to think about things to you know navigate around to be comfortable in order to reach their own conclusions they and they never gave them that different yeah yeah and i came along and i recognized this and i was like oh well i can do that like i, I don't mind spending you know two extra minutes with them and to give them the time to process and ask questions and be curious about things. Like these guys never answered questions because the people that they asked never, uh, that they talked to never asked questions. They always tried to back away. They were always like retreating in this combat situation. But I wanted to make them come towards me, to pull them towards me so that it's much easier for me to guide them to the sale. So what happened in that environment is that we recognized that different people did well with certain types of people and other people did well with other types of people. And we would pass contacts around. So once they recognize, oh, this guy, I, I can't sell to this guy. I hate him. He's horrible. He sucks. But I know one person in my team because we were split into three teams so that we were competitive with each other and we had like more motivation or whatever. But the idea was that we would cooperate to get better results for the whole team. And once I recognize that this guy is a good fit for that guy and this other guy is a good fit for that guy, and we would trade contacts and everybody was better off. That's why we had better results. So that was cool. That's, that's a great experience to have. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that everything that you've said so far in your story have been all great experiences. And what, what surprises me that is that they're so varied. Like you, you went from basically being in esports to getting into marketing and then having a stint as an entrepreneur, as you said, and then uh, back to marketing, I presume. So my, my next question is going to be, how did things develop from then on to today? And where are you basically at today? Um, okay, so after the entrepreneur stint, I, I got burned out. That was not a, a great experience. It was for a while, but once the wall started encroaching on me more and more and I lost my autonomy and freedom, I had to leave. Mm -hmm. And I took a break. And during that break, I had a bunch of capital stored up, uh, you know, so I had the opportunity to wait and do things in a roundabout way. And I started investing in uh, more resources, knowledge, education courses, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I spent like $20,000 on just courses trying to nice. you know, learn from other people. Anything and good that you bought that you would recommend to others? Sorry to interrupt uh, you on this. Sure. Um, 
So I guess there are a few people that stood out to me. So Doberman Dan for copywriting and like direct response type stuff, uh, generally direct mail, uh, mm-hmm. things like that. He's very solid. So there's one, uh, just sell the damn thing. Yeah, it's very simple as a concept. Stop beating around the bush. It's like the opposite of how I'm trying to do things, actually, <laughs> but, which is why it's interesting to me. And he's like, you know, just, just go to the people who want to buy your stuff and just sell the damn thing. Like, well, stop trying to convince them to just sell the damn thing. Yeah. Um, that's sort so of that's, my style. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the mind opening in a certain sense that, hey, this is a way to do it, but there's also the other way to do it. Uh, and that's uh, uh, Ramit Sethi, who he's like a, a more modern copywriter. He has a whole bunch of businesses. He caters quite a bit to non-entrepreneurial people, like actual employees who want to get a better job or negotiate a higher salary, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he has a more roundabout approach to things. And he's very uh, focused on long ter- long-term content and relationship building. Uh, and he also has a course on copywriting, which is based on, you know, good copy principles. So uh, uh, I recommend some of his stuff. Like if you want to become a freelancer, he has like earn 1K. Um, his copywriting course is called Call to Action. Those are pretty good. And I got a whole bunch of stuff like for email or whatever I want to specialize at the time. But uh, I'm just a, a very generalist guy. Okay. I, I dabble in a lot of things. Uh, my tagline on LinkedIn is literally jack of most trades, master of some. nice one yeah so that's how i would describe myself i I don't like focusing on just one thing i get bored so i I get really good at multiple things but i'm not the best at any of them yeah i see but yeah but this is is very good because what i can do with this expertise this varied expertise various experience is that i can do most things on my own and then i can find an actual super duper specialist who's way better than me at a particular thing and instruct them and guide them and get the best results out of them. Like someone who doesn't have a varied experience can't exactly extract the maximum value out of a, a, another person who is it the specialist. Sense, sure. They have to trust that they can do that thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so uh, what, what happened after the courses? Um, I don't know what else I should mention there, actually, uh, in terms of what to recommend there's I so many mentioned a lot so far i mean yeah yeah there, there's a lot down. of content we, we don't want to overwhelm people with content but yeah so i, I started actually trying to start a bunch of businesses and uh, I, I was doing it in my spare time uh, I, I got back into esports kind of a little bit i what had a lot of experience with counter-strike well i had a lot of free time and i i've always been engaged with it at least superficially but i wanted to put my experience to good use. And when I gave up uh, the job, the entrepreneurial job at the castle, the first thing that I did literally was fly over to Germany and attend a Counter-Strike tournament. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to go back to my roots basically because I've been playing Counter-Strike since I was six years old, uh, literally all my life. That's a long uh, time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like over 15 years, pretty much all the time, yeah. Uh, so uh, I have way more than 10,000 hours in Counter-Strike. So that would be basically what I am a master at. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely more so than copywriting or marketing or whatever. <laughs> so I went back to my roots. And uh, at the time, sports betting in the esports scene was kind of booming. Like it just started. There's a lot of dumb money in the industry. A lot of kids with 
like skins in the game, trading stuff and betting on stupid games. And I had so much experience and it was such a well-developed intuitive understanding in this industry. And I also knew from poker, like how to uh, bankroll manage and how to you know manage expected value. And I knew about the Kelly criterion and all those things. So I had a very sophisticated approach to betting that I, I could make just a lot of money by watching Counter-Strike tournaments, which I did for fun anyway, uh, understanding the teams who played and betting on their games. Nice. Like, I, I, I had a way higher um, success rate than the market, yeah, than the average person who bet on these games or the bookies who made the odds mm-hmm. and all of that. So I spent like two years in sports betting um, and I made quite a bit of money just by betting on games. And uh, I used a bunch of that money to try and build my very own online casino mm-hmm. uh, with this aspect of sports betting and using the benefits from uh, gaining that sort of pseudo currency because it wasn't based on actual money. It was based on uh, virtual assets in Counter-Strike in that game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So with that assets, uh, I had a friend who I was uh, working with that I met through the betting stuff. And uh, he was uh, getting to web development. So he would build the website. He also had uh, another guy who knew JavaScript. So he would do like the more internal core development type stuff. And I did the marketing and the copywriting and built a casino and we launched it and we ran it for like a week and then we shut it down because uh, we had to get licenses. It was like set up in the UK. And literally at the time when we launched it, a huge scandal showed up in the, the industry like a lot of people got sued and it was scary and we kind of got scared and we're like oh we need to spend fifty thousand dollars on a license from the uk i don't know if you want to do that and we kind of gave up on it along with my fifteen thousand dollars of investment plus like i don't know how much time well um, yeah those businesses yeah. tend to be quite regulated yeah they are they are and we didn't do our due diligence on, I mean, we kind of did, we knew what we were getting into, which is what we expected was that we could run this shit for like six months, make a bunch of money really, really fast. And then with the money that we got from it, we can pay all the regulation stuff, yeah, so make it everything super legit. Yeah. But the timing was just off. Like we were just mm-hmm. late to the party and we missed out on it. So that's, it. but then I went into other things and I, I just had a few attempts with different businesses until I ran out of money. And then I stopped and then I kind of freaked out a little bit. And then I got back into copywriting and I've been doing copywriting ever since. And like I work with various businesses, help them with their marketing. Nothing really super deep because I'm kind of lazy. Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure lazy is the right word, but I do very highly value my freedom and my free time and the activities that I generally do. Mm -hmm. So getting engaged into serious projects for long periods of time, it's kind of stressful because there, mm-hmm. there's always diminishing returns. So unless I get uh, like compensating more and more and more because I get bored and the satisfaction of participating in a project goes down, so does the value proportion of the investment. So I start mm-hmm. doing other things which are more valuable to me like in terms of my perspective. I see. So you really yeah. value your freedom a lot and that makes you yeah. make some decisions that others maybe would not. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would never work a regular job. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like maybe as a sort of punishment or as a challenge. I've, I've done that actually. Uh, or if it's for someone else. So uh, 
this is like a, a tangent completely unrelated, but my aunt, uh, my mother's sister, basically, has uh, a church restoration business. Oh, that's like, interesting. Yeah, so we're in Eastern Europe. Okay, there's a whole bunch of churches here. People are very religious. And what's cool about this place is that in Christian Orthodoxy, most of these churches are painted. And they're painted by, you know, not super amazing artists necessarily, but like historical artists. Like they've been painted in the 16th century. And you have to maintain that painting. It's been 500 years. Okay, how do you do that? So you need experts who are capable of restoring that art and maintaining it and making sure that it's, it's sound. Uh, and that's what my family kind of does. And uh, my uncle was involved with this stuff as well. And uh, I have a pretty good relationship with him. And he asked me for his help. Like, hey, we need people to work on these stuff. Uh, there's not enough, like it's hard to find employees. Nobody wants to do this thing because it's hard, whatever. Do you want to come and do it? And I was like, oh, you know what? I have nothing better to do. Let's go and do this. And I basically worked as a regular employee uh, like a, a, a physical labor, pretty much, and like with half of it being artistic, sort of painting on walls, for like three months, twice actually. I only do these things for three months oh, cool. because, yeah, I, I don't like to commit myself too long because of what I just mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. But um, those were very interesting experiences. Like uh, working in that environment is a lot different from working as a freelancer and it develops a lot of different skills. Like you have to actually have a structure. Uh, you have to actually be there on time and do things the right way and listen to other people's authority. And like uh, you have to defer uh, your knowledge, your expertise to someone else and trust what they're saying, what yeah. they're telling you to do, uh, which if you're the expert, because you're like a consultant or like a specialist in a particular skill, you never do that. Yeah. You never listen to other people. You're the one telling other people what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so that's interesting. And I also, you know, attempted to do the entrepreneurial stuff in that environment. Like, of course, it's my aunt. Her business sucks. I want to help her business stop sucking. I have marketing expertise and like business organization type stuff as well. So why not help it? <laughs> it doesn't always work. Like a lot of people are not open to outside suggestions. Mm -hmm. And even if they are, they are very slow to implement them. Yeah, I mean, it goes to that mindset thing that we said about the mm -hmm. fixed mindset. Uh, and if somebody doesn't have it, as you mentioned earlier, it's very hard to get them to sort of change their mind and see the light on that. Yeah, yeah. And even if you have very great rapport with them, like th this was my aunt. We've known each other my entire life. Okay. We have a very, very good relationship. Why the hell is she not listening to me? I'm telling her, just do this and it's going to be better. Mm -hmm. Why aren't you doing it? You know, I don't know exactly how it works from a psychological standpoint in this case, but some people just don't listen to outside advice. They have to come up with uh, those ideas on their own. Yeah. Uh, I think that some people, unless they really see it as their idea, they they don't act on it. Um, yeah, or, or there needs to be a very, very strong authority. Mm -hmm. So uh, if they're like a, a, an American Republican and Trump says to do something, they're going to listen to Trump. Yeah, but if their neighbor, uh, who is way more qualified in that particular thing, like they have a PhD in that thing, tells them that same thing, they're never going to listen, you know? Mm -hmm. Kind of like that. Yeah. So basically at the moment, uh, you're mostly doing copywriting and I mean, are you doing other stuff or is that the central focus of what you're doing at the moment? 
uh, well, in terms of my skills and discipline, it's copywriting. Although I've also picked up a business recently uh, because e-commerce has been booming a lot in the past, however long, actually. Um, but especially now with COVID, like Amazon, you know, it's like the mm-hmm. third largest company in the world. Uh, it's just huge. Bezos became the richest man on the planet for a while. Uh, when I was working at the an investment company selling thing, uh, the, the biggest offer that I ever sold was for the IPO of Alibaba. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the Chinese Amazon, basically. So I, I did have quite a bit of understanding of e-commerce because of that. And uh, I was like, okay, let, let's get into that as well. And I was provided with an opportunity to uh, pick up this company, which basically services FBA sellers on Amazon, people who just you know sell products through Amazon's fulfillment service. Nice, nice. Right. So, I mean, if anybody wants to find you, you know, maybe to work with you or just to interact with you, is there any way that they can reach out to you at the moment? Uh, sure. Well, uh, I'm not really can... very public. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can put the stuff in the description, I guess, but uh, I, I'm not really a very public person. That's a big benefit of this type of life, actually, uh, being as an entrepreneur or freelancer or whatever. You can be successful without having to be a public figure. Go figure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I, I do have a LinkedIn though. So you can find me on LinkedIn. We'll put a link somewhere, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also if you like have anything to offer, or, like have some questions or whatever, I don't know. Uh, you can also shoot me an email, put that email there. It's maybe like a website for the business that I took over. Uh, if you're also involved in uh, Amazon e-commerce type things, maybe we can talk about that. And I'd love to chat and encounter each other and build a relationship maybe to solve some problems together and create value. That's really cool. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about what the e-commerce business does exactly. So if those guys want to contact you, anybody running an e-commerce business selling via Amazon, basically, why should they contact you? What what do you do for them? Sure. Of course. Well, basically, Amazon is stealing from you. So what happens is that there's a bunch of uh, slippage. You know, every, every business has some level of losses in terms of their inventory gets damaged or lost in transit or there are defects or things like that. And when you're using a, a fulfillment service by someone else and things get damaged during that fulfillment process, yeah, like the way Amazon tends to do, the responsibility is on the person doing the fulfillment to reimburse the provider of the products yeah, with the value of the products that they messed up. Mm-hmm. So if Amazon loses your stuff or they break your stuff or they have bad refunds or they do all sorts of things that they're not supposed to do, what they normally should be doing is giving you your money back. And they do that sometimes, okay? Like not that often actually. And there's a lot of money that they don't return to people. And then they just keep it. Like why would they return it if they don't have to? And what people should do is they should let Amazon know that, hey, Amazon, you have money that you should be giving me back, but you're not giving me back. Please give it to me. But most people don't know that they're supposed to do this. They don't know how to do it. They don't know what they should do it for. So that's what this business does. We identify these problems, these issues that Amazon creates that they don't properly compensate you for. And we start and fight with them. Like, hey, Amazon, you owe these guys money. Give them their money back. And then they give you your money back and you make basically profit out of nowhere. So generally we cover like one, two, 3% of people's gross revenue every single month. Wow. That can be quite a bit. Yeah. So if you have small margins, like in e-commerce, if you have 10% profit 
margin, that's pretty good. Some people, obviously, you aim for a lot more, but the bigger you get, the smaller your margins get. Yeah. So if you're, cool. yeah, if you're making like ten million dollars a year and your profit margins are like seven, eight percent, getting an extra one, two percent is like a, an extra twenty, thirty, fifty dollars, fifty thousand dollars a month in revenue. Yeah. Out of nowhere in mm-hmm. profit. Sorry, not revenue. Profit every month. Uh, just by big. doing this stuff. Yeah, it, it is quite big. Basically, I mean, it, it scales up. Basically, the, the the fastest way, you know, to make money from such a situation is to save on what you're losing, you know, rather than grow your bottom line. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to increase conversions. The bigger you are, you've already done all of the optimizing processes. Yeah, you've already uh, improved your conversions as far as they go. You've already acquired as much market share as you can get, like 10, 15% or whatever. Uh, you've already reduced your cost as much as you can. So what do you do? You, like, you need uh, additional ways of increasing your margins. And this is an additional way that like 90% of Amazon sellers aren't even aware that it exists. So that's what I'm trying to do, trying to raise awareness for it and uh, you know, get people to actually do this. And obviously, if we can get, if they can get us to do it for them, and we can win-win out of it, that's perfectly great. Okay, Which is also that's... a marketing opportunity. Hey, by the way, uh, so if you want to get into marketing, if you want to build your skills or whatever, you can talk to me, and we can maybe do like an affiliate deal or something. I, did, I definitely wanted to talk about affiliate marketing here a little bit, but we didn't really get into it because I'm not really an expert in it, but it's a, a wonderful opportunity to get started for very cheap, for practically nothing, to build your skills and uh, build, you know, your own business and revenue. Yeah, and I I'm mean, done. that's absolutely the case. And I mean, we're going to have an episode sometime about affiliate marketing. And I mean, maybe we will meet sometime again to have a chat and we can cover it in more depth then. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a lot of value here. And I mean, guys who have e-commerce businesses on Amazon, I'm sure that they'd reach out and check out your services. It all sounds fantastic. I mean, uh, you recover their money with, uh, it seems to me, zero headaches for them. And yeah, they don't have to do anything. Money. Right. <laughs> free money, free money. It's free money, <laughs> honestly. Like, yeah. ironically, when the offer is just so good, it's harder to sell. Like people are very skeptical. Like, oh, free money out of nowhere. No, there's no way. Oh, we need to give you access to stuff. No, no, we don't want to. It's very difficult. Yeah. Like, it's. I'm actually thinking of charging more, like charging an upfront fee just for the privilege of telling them the success. Like, I don't know, but whatever. Mm-hmm. It's cool stuff. Yeah, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, right. So, I mean, you've had a. Um, fantastic series of opportunities until now you want so i think that there's many more waiting in the future and thank you very much for coming on here uh yeah, I mean, thank you, you very uh, much for inviting me you're literally the perfect fit for the underground marketer because that's literally what you are as you said you like to stay in the shadows and make yeah. things happen yeah behind the scenes right yeah, yeah. So thank you very yeah. much then, Iwan. And for all our listeners, thank you very much for your support. It means a lot to us. I know that this is a much longer episode, but there's a lot of high value here. And I'll just tell you now to stay tuned for the next one. And until then, you know, keep growing your business and providing massive value to the world. And don't forget that you are basically the reason why we're all growing richer 
our freedoms are expanding and we're all living in greater prosperity. You know, entrepreneurs are the ones who actually make things moving. So that's you guys. So thank you very much and till next time.